Well, last week, I promised I'd get you out at 11, and I planned my sermon for that proposition, to get you out by 11. And then I come in this morning, I was looking at the songs that Dean picked out, and I realized he picked out really short songs. (laughs) So we might get out even before 11. Who knows? It depends on how long-winded I feel. So my notes say, Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you. We told the Christmas narrative last week through the first-person narratives that the youth read, and thank you, all the youth, very much for bringing the Christmas story alive through that service. And if you were not here for that, go back and watch it. It was a great, great, great time. We saw how Mary, Joseph, shepherds, wise men, how they all experienced the presence of God through the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. So this morning, I'm not going to read the Christmas story because we did it last week. Today, we're going to read the narrative that happened 40 days after Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 22, 2, verses 22 to 35. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35, picks up the story 40 days after Jesus' birth. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's mother and father marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Today, we're going to be talking about Simeon. We're going to be talking about waiting. But before we do, will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to set aside a short little time in the midst of busyness and hecticness, in the midst of going and coming, in the midst of giving and receiving, to reflect on you, the reason for this season. Because you, Lord, you are truly worthy. We have taken this holiday and we have smashed it and made it our own. Lord, remind us of the amazing, awesome truth that 2,000 years ago you loved us so much that you sent your son to come and be with us, that we might have a relationship with you, that we might know you intimately and one day see you face to face and glory in your presence for all of eternity. Lord, you are worthy to be exalted, not just this morning, but all day today, and all day tomorrow, and all, week, and all year, 
until you call us home and into all to eternity. Lord, you are worthy of everything. You are worthy of our time. You're worthy of our finances. You're worthy of our priorities and our desires. You're worthy of everything because you are creator of the universe and you've done everything for us. We want to worship you this morning. So Father, I ask that you would push aside all the things that we are thinking about, all the cooking that has to be done and the preparations and the disappointments about weather and family and, and all the goings and comings that we might worship you alone in simplicity to declare this morning that you, Lord, are worthy of it all and you are the one that we adore. Father, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Simeon. I need to fill in a little bit of background on this passage. Because if we just jump into it, there's, there's, there's some things about it that are kind of confusing. So, some background. 4,000 years before Simeon was born. Now that is background. Right there. 4,000 years before Simeon was born, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of time. It happened. He made everything perfect on that day, in those days. He called the sky and the sun and the stars out of nothing. He spoke the trees and the plants, flowers, everything into existence by the power of his word. He created light. He created water put fish in the oceans, and finally on the last day of his creation, the culmination of it, he created man and woman, humanity, out of nothing, places them in the garden, says it's all good. I have provided everything for you here in this garden. Everything you've ever needed is right here. You lack nothing. You can eat from any tree you want to. You can frolic over there. You can dance over there. You can do, this is your spot. You have no wants. You have no needs. Oh, and by the way, there's this tree over here called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. And you don't need to because I've provided everything else for you. You have no wants. You have no desires that are unmet. Everything that is good and perfect is here for you. It's just, there's a boundary over here, don't cross it, because, and you don't need to, because everything else, all your desires are fulfilled. God says, I've provided everything for you. Well, on that day, as we know, or a couple days later, they chose to disobey. They looked at that tree, and they said, God is withholding something from me. There's a, there's a need I have that God has not fulfilled, therefore I'm going to fulfill it myself. I'm not going to remain within the boundaries that God has given because obviously God doesn't know what is right for me. And I'm going to go and take it. And so they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And sin came into the world and death through sin, both physical death and spiritual death, that's Genesis 1 to 2 to 3, all in a nutshell. Except for one little part. Right smack dab in Genesis 3. They have sinned, 
There is separation between God and humanity, separation from humanity to each other, separation from humanity to creation. Everything is an uproar, broken mess, chaos. And in the midst of that broken mess, that chaos, as God is speaking judgment on the serpent Satan, he says this short little bit. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Satan and humanity, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is what's called the first telling of the gospel. Back in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of it all, God says, yes, humanity, you've made a mess of it. You have said you don't want me, but I still want you. And I promise that someone is going to come who will take all this broken, chaotic mess that you have made, turn it on ahead, and make everything right. Someone is going to come who will restore creation to the perfection it was designed to be and to restore the relationships between humanity and humanity, restore the relationship between humanity and creation, and ultimately restore the relationship between humanity and their God. So everything that was made wrong in that day would be made right in this day. I can just imagine Adam and Eve hearing that. And as they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and they're going into the world of imperfection with thorns and rattlesnakes and scorpions and black widow spiders and all sorts of these things that we hate, despise, and abominate, and they see the contrast between perfection of the garden and imperfection and death of their life, they say, when is it going to happen? When is this man going to come? When is it going to happen? And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they see birth after birth after birth. And as more and more people get born, they see humanity getting more and more and more evil. And they don't see that guy coming. They don't see the one that's promised in Genesis 3.15. He doesn't come. 930 years of waiting. And Adam and Eve see nothing. Nothing. And they die without seeing it at all. More humanity comes and goes. They don't see it. Then Noah comes. Huge flood. Wipes out all of creation. The world is destroyed. And God makes a covenant with Noah after they get off the ark. And he says that he will not flood the earth again, places a rainbow in the sky. And I can just see Noah and his family. They see the change. The earth is wiped clean, washed by the power of God. They say, now is the time. Now is the time. The one that was promised in Genesis 3, the one that was promised 2,000 years before, is finally coming. Noah says, maybe it's one of my grandkids. And it doesn't happen. They die, and his kids die, and their kids die, and their kids die, and they do not see the one promised. They keep waiting. Israel happens before that Abraham comes. 400 years after the flood. 
And he's told that the people of the earth would be blessed through him and his descendants. And that points to the Messiah. He's, he, he and his descendants, he's going to see the one who's going to make all things new. The one that will bring change. Does he come? No. Instead, Abraham sees pain and chaos. And his descendants get enslaved in Egypt. They get rescued out there, but they're still seeing pain and chaos. David comes and has, is on his throne. First best, best king of Israel. He's told that he's going to have a son that will sit on the throne forever. He says, awesome. The promise, the thing that was promised almost 3,000 years before. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, he sees his son, who sees his son, who sees his son, and the, the kings just keep getting worse and worse and worse, and it, it doesn't happen. Isaiah comes, and he prophesies about a suffering servant who will die for the sins of the world. And everyone sees that and says, awesome, I want that. I've been yearning for the Messiah for over 3,000 years. I've been yearning for him. And he doesn't come. Instead of him coming, Babylon comes and wipes out all of Israel, destroys Jerusalem and the temple. Israel gets deported. Pain, chaos. They come back to the land. They're led by the prophets of Zechariah, Malachi, and others. Zechariah prophesies in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous, victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's pointing to the Messiah, and everyone knows it's pointing to the Messiah. They hold this one up. Of all the passages, this is the passage about the Messiah. He is coming, and he's going to make all things new, and he doesn't come. In fact, soon after Zechariah prophesies this, There is 400 years of silence where God does not speak through a prophet. And the people of Israel are like, what? But God, you said this. What's going on? What's going on? Where are you, God? Nothing happens. The people of Israel have never been good at waiting on God. We know their history never had been. But over and over and over again, they are prophesied a Messiah is coming. A Messiah is coming. A Messiah is coming. He's going to rescue his people. He's going to restore the world to what it was created to be. The perfection that was would be again. The relationship the creation had with their creator would be, oh, so sweet again. And so Israel waits. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. For 4,000 years, the world waits. 4,000 years. We have a hard time waiting in line at Walmart or at Casey's. The world waits for 4,000 years. And then Simeon. Simeon is one of those who's been waiting. Not for 4,000 years, he's not that old, but he's been waiting a lifetime. And Luke records for us in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, he says, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. A couple notes about Simeon. It says he was righteous and devout. That meant he tried his hardest to keep the law. 
pure and simply, but he didn't do it because he wanted status. He didn't do it because he was trying to prove to God something. He did it because this is what God said for him to do. And he wanted to follow God. And so he did. He was a faithful man because he wanted to know his God and do his best for him. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Because he was a faithful man, because he wanted to know God, he was waiting for what God promised. Now, unlike the rest of Israel at this time, when he looked for the consolation of Israel, he was not looking for a political deliverer. You could see from what he said, he wasn't looking for that. He wanted salvation for the world from sin. Israel's consolation, that phrase, could be defined many different ways. We could look ahead in chapter, Luke chapter 2 to Anna in Luke chapter 2, verse 38, where Anna refers to J- Jerusalem's redemption. Coming to them at that very time, Anna gives thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Again, redemption. This is not speaking of their political re- deliverance. This is speaking of salvation, redemption, that God would pay for their sins and bring them from slavery to sin to his household. Consolation of Israel, it could be also defined as what Joseph of Arimathea points out in Luke 23, verses 50 to 55, the coming of God's kingdom. There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, same description basically of Simeon who had not consented to the decision and action of the religious leaders at that time. He came from Judea in the town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, consolation of Jerusalem, when the kingdom of God would come. It could also be defined uh, as in Jesus' parable in Luke 12, verse 36. He says, uh, like servants, they're waiting for their master return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they immediately open the door for him, talking about, the master. Israel knew that they are not following Rome. They're not following religious leaders. They are following God, at least the righteous, the faithful ones. And they're looking for their master, their king, to come and return so they can throw open the door. And that's what Simeon is doing. He's saying, I want my master and I'm going to throw open the door for him. And this all ties to what Paul says in Acts chapter 24, verse 15. I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked the just and unjust, the consolation of Israel is the end of time when God says, I will resurrect. Death is not the end. And those who follow me will come to eternity and those who don't will go to damnation. We don't know much about Simeon. We don't know. We don't know his background. Scripture doesn't say. We don't know how much he knew theologically about what was going on, but we do know that he was a faithful and righteous man. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. That means he was worshiping God. He wanted God to come, and he put his hope in God for the resurrection. He put his hope in God to change and make all things right. He put his hope in God to bring forgiveness of sins. We knew that Simeon was faithful, and we knew that had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Messiah. When did God reveal this to him, that he would not die? The Bible doesn't say, but we do know it was not that day. It was before this. Simeon had been waiting Israel had been waiting for 2,000 years. The world had been waiting for 4,000 years. Simeon had been waiting a lifetime, day in, day out. Is today going to be the day, Simeon asks? And he goes through the day, and it's not. So he goes to sleep, and he wakes up the next day and says, is today going to be the day? And it's not. So he goes to sleep, wakes up the next day, says, is today going to be the day? And it's not. 
day in, day out, day in, day out. Simeon waits. And he waits. And he waits. He could have given up hope. He could have said, you know what, God, I know you promised this, but I don't see it, and I haven't seen it for the past 20 years. And before I'm giving up on you, God. I'm giving up. But he doesn't. Instead of giving up hope, he lives faithfully, constantly waiting, constantly looking, until one day, finally, God says, go. Go to the temple. Today's the day. So moved by the Spirit, he goes to the temple. And then as he walks in, he sees this young couple with this baby who's crying, yelling as only babies can. And he says, that's him. And he runs up and tears that baby out of the parents' arms. Can you imagine what the parents were saying? This random stranger jerks the baby out of their arms. And then he says, he praises God, and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I can die in happiness, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light up for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then he turns to that young couple, Mary and Joseph, and he prophesies about the future. And he says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Not a nice thing to say to parents. After a lifetime of waiting, Simeon finally sees the hope. But he sees it in a baby. He doesn't see it on the cross. He sees the baby. And it's still a promise because he dies before Jesus grows up. He dies before Jesus performs his first miracle. All he sees is a baby. And he knows this is the fulfillment of the promise. I know God is going to do it. And then he dies with just a taste of the fulfillment. That's Simeon. What about us? Christmas is a season of joy. It's a season of excitement. It is. Back on January 8th, we took our kids to a family Christmas shopping trip. And we split them up, and they buy presents for each other and us. And it's an hour or so of passing kids back and forth to make sure that they can buy presents for the people who are not with them. It's a mess. But the kids have such fun. But we did it on December 8th, which meant they had to go from December 8th all the way till tomorrow without being able to give those presents. And they're itching, itching to tell about those presents. For the first couple days, David would come up to me like, do you know what I get? She got you? I'm like, no, no, I don't. Can I tell you? No, no, you can't. Why not? Because it's a secret, and that's the thing. It's a secret. It's got to stay a secret. Turns out they went and, and they bartered with each other, and they each told each other one thing that they got each other. 
David told them two things. Little kids have a hard time waiting. But you know, we as an adults have a hard time waiting too. And in America, we have a really hard time waiting. It, we have a society who says, I want things now. I want it now. Young people have a hard time waiting to marriage to experience the benefits of marriage because they want it now. People refuse to wait and earn up money to buy something because they want it now. We read stories about people who've been accused of doing different things and instead of waiting for the trial, we say, yes, they did it or no, they don't because we want the answer now. We're impatient. And that's just us. The next generation, younger than me and younger than that, have been raised on internet and social media and they don't know what waiting means because they can get any fact any picture, any video, they can post something and receive a response about what people think about it in milliseconds. They, they get it now. They don't know how, what it means to wait. And so when they sit through a lecture, lectures are getting shorter and shorter because younger people have a shorter, shorter attachment span because they're used to things happening now. We don't know what it means to wait anymore. But we are in a waiting period right now. We're in a waiting period. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, are defined as those who wait. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Simeon saw him on that temple, praised God, and said, salvation is coming. 33 years later, Jesus died on the cross, was placed in the tomb for three days, rose again, proving that he has the power to save from sin, death, and the devil, proving that his salvation is true. He appeared to 500 people, proving that, yes, he did, in fact, raise from the dead. He is alive. And then, in front of those 500 people, he lifts up off the ground and floats up to heaven. And everyone there, 500 people, standing up with their mouths wide open, agape, what in the world just happened? And then angels appeared to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 10 to 11. As they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. He's going to come back. Our faith is not a dead faith. We don't, do, we don't come to church because we're trying to check off these boxes in a, some sort of hope that maybe if there's an afterlife, we'll be there. We have a living hope. We know beyond a shadow of doubt that yes, there is something after death, that Jesus is up there preparing a place for us. But not only is he up there preparing a place for us when we die, we know he's coming back again. And he's gonna bring his kingdom here to earth. He's coming. And the disciples said, wow, that's awesome. And so they stop staring up in the sky, their mouths hanging wide open, and they go to Jerusalem. And what do they do in Jerusalem? They wait. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. Until finally on Pentecost, 
Holy Spirit comes in a rush of wind and fire and they find out what they're supposed to do and they go and tell people. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus that day. A couple days later, 2,000. A couple days later, 5,000. Wildfire. But things don't just happen like this though because they act and then they wait. They wait for God's direction for how to live the Christian life. They wait for direction on how to have church leadership and outreach. Their whole acts, the whole thing of acts is all about waiting and then acting and then waiting and then acting and then waiting some more. Their life was a life of waiting on God until Christ called them. Waiting on God until Christ called them. Waiting on God, hoping, beyond hope that as they acted, today would be the day when Jesus would come back. But he hasn't come back yet. And it's been 2,000 years of the church waiting and acting and waiting and acting and waiting and acting until finally, hopefully, he would come back. But he never has. Paul actually wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 3, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul says that there's things that have to happen before Jesus comes, and those signs, those things have not happened yet. So we're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting for him to come. We're waiting. This Christmas season, in the midst of celebration, in the midst of family togetherness, we are waiting. We do all the activities of Jesus' birth, but we are waiting. We're waiting for his return to call us home. We're waiting for him to change this world so that everything that is wrong will be made gloriously right. In the celebration, we cannot stop the waiting. We can't. We must be the people who are waiting, who says my hope is not in this world, so even though the celebration is so amazing and my time with family is awesome, this is not what I'm living for. I am one of those who is waiting for the hope to be revealed. Unfortunately, we don't like to wait. We don't. Instead, we take matters in our own hands. We say, you know what? He's not coming back right now, so I can do whatever I want to right now. I can. And we make up our own morality we make up our own rules, and we reap the consequences of that, all because we're tired of waiting. We say, you know what, I'm tired of waiting, so I'm going to create my own Messiah, and I'm going to place my hope in that man or, or that woman to, to make the change that I want to see happen in this world, change that only Christ can bring. And since we're tired of waiting, we place our hope in them, and they make a horrible, miserable mess of it, when instead we could have been People who say, yes, I know this world is a mess, but Jesus is our only answer. Jesus is our only hope. I am one of those who wait. We say that, you know what? We're tired of waiting. We're impatient. Waiting on God is too hard. So we create busyness in our lives. 
So much so that even the time that we could spend with God and have that intimate, close relationship every single day through word and prayer gets taken over with our busyness because we're tired of waiting. And we just fill our life with everything else because we want to forget the fact that we're waiting for a promise to be fulfilled that has not been fulfilled. God has refused to fulfill it in our timetable. So we fill our lives with everything that is not him. We're tired of waiting but instead we are the people who are called to wait, to wait. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse seven, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. Don't fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Wait, wait for the Lord. Jeremiah wrote this in Lamentation as he saw his, his world, his country being torn apart by the Babylonians. He writes, Lamentations 3, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Simeon waited. He waited a lifetime, and then he saw. In the busyness of this season, in the busyness of this life, May we take some moments to stop. And to wait. To reflect on our God who has promised something so amazing that all of the glitz, all of the glamour, all of the gifts, all of the food just pale in comparison of the hope that we have. And may we allow that promise that we have stopped and waited and reflected upon may allow it to change our lives. May we be known as the people who wait for God instead of the people who forget him. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for being the God who came. In your fullness of time, you came. In the perfection of time, you came. And so we know in your perfection, you will come again. Teach us to rely on that and not on ourselves. And may this season be a season where we reflect and remember to wait on you because you, Lord, are worthy. You are glorious. And we want to see you over everything else. Thanks, Father. Amen.